Welcome back to another episode of the Weekly Driver Podcast. My name is James Rea. I'm an automotive columnist for Bay Area News Group, and I publish and edit the website, theweeklydriver.com. My colleague and friend is Bruce Aldrich, and today we have on Steve Burkett. Uh, He's in Boston uh, today, and um, Steve is an EV expert. Uh, He is with a site called uh, findthebestcarprice.com forward slash EV, and Steve is here with us to talk about the ever-changing world of electric vehicles. So welcome to our podcast, Steve. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. I guess a good place to start is you you have quite a history with uh, electric vehicles. Can you tell us uh, the vehicle that you drive and, and give us an overview of what you're doing with the site and, and your car as well? Yeah, um, I wouldn't consider, consider myself a, a bleeding-edge early adopter, but certainly we've got um, about four or five years now and a uh, good fifty or 60,000 miles, all electric miles, under our belts as a family. Um, so um, I work with uh, com on the EV wing of their site. Uh, so it's a site started up by a gentleman called Jeff Cudd, who's uh, basically... Looking to uh, you know help car buyers navigate the ever changing world of um, car buying and uh, you know some of the the vicissitudes of uh, dealership um, yes. negotiation that kind of thing. Sure. Um, and obviously EVs play a significant part with that. Uh, you know it's uh, still a small kind of portion of the market at two or three percent, but um, you know that's rising all all the time. And uh, you know my purchases are in line with that. I guess uh, we started off our journey as a family here in Boston with um, uh, 2012 Chevy Volt. So that was the hybrid kind of or extended range electric vehicle that runs about 40 or 50 miles on uh, all electric, and then has a gas engine that will kick in and uh, you know give you another 300 miles or so. Um, but we kind of felt the limitations of that in some ways that we would like to drive more on electric, you know, the 40 or 50 miles handled our daily uh, driving, but, um, you know, didn't give us the full uh, full electric experience, I guess. You know, it's a bit of both worlds, um, although we did love the car. And obviously the family was growing, so we needed something that was a little bit bigger than the four seats that the Volt brings. So we uh, kind of jumped at the chance when Chevy um, and GM introduced the Chevrolet Bolt EV, all EV, um, in 2017, so we moved on to a uh, three-year lease of a 2017 Chevrolet Bolt EV, and uh, just last year, around this time last year, got into a 2020 lease again. Um, again, trying to like look at the technology changing rapidly, and whether we want to own, you know, when we want to own the vehicle is uh, the next decision. But certainly, the the leases we've had so far have held up very well, and uh, it's been all electric driving ever since. Great! Wow, Steve. So you started with the with the uh, EV um, Chevy Volt with a V, and that's yeah, a hybrid. It, that was like a no brainer, right? You don't have to do anything different. You don't have to change your lifestyle or anything. But when you go into a Bolt with a B, full electric, what so what were some of the changes you had to start thinking about when you go to drive? You know, plugging it in overnight and what else? Yeah, I mean, in in some ways, the uh, the biggest advantage, you know, for for eighty to ninety percent of our, you know, driving, at least the daily local driving, is um, you know, waking up to a hundred percent or you know, close to a hundred percent as uh, you can go, uh, because we can plug in here, um, 
you know, just at the house and the car is ready to go in the morning. So you have um, in that 2017 Bolt EV at least uh, 230, 240 miles worth of range every day, which more than meets, you know, most people, certainly in metro areas where the, the commutes are short or you have, uh, you know, errands on a local five, 10 mile basis. Um, it's worked just perfectly. So in that sense, it was a lot more convenient because, you know, we're waking up to 200, 250 electric miles rather than, you know, 40 or 50 obviously with the uh, the caveat of the gas engine in the vault um, if you need it. But, uh, you know, we, we found that more often than not, we're not charging up more than once a week in our, you know, daily daily life, daily errands, school runs, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that was a, a convenience. Um, the longer trips, we do have family over in Ohio. Um, you know, we obviously do road trips for vacations. So that's where you start to get into the um, more considered and more planning um, aspects of owning an electric vehicle, but the the infrastructure around here, at least in um, you know the way, the East Coast, um, New England is very good and has been since we bought the car, um, and obviously over on the West Coast where you guys are, it's also uh, kind of leading the country. So there are gaps and there are places we've had to do a little bit of uh, you know thinking of uh, where we'd stop at hotels and where we would charge the car overnight. But for, for 90, 95 percent of our driving, it's been a very smooth transition. That's great. So when you're out on the road, what's a typical stop for, for charging? 20, 30 minutes or longer? So the car, it's a, it's a kind of a mid, you know, it's 2015, 2016 technology, so it's getting a little long in the tooth now. Um, but we're looking at, you know, 45 to uh, 60 minutes okay. stop times. But uh, to be honest, the family needs stop time <laughs> uh, around great. that length to stretch their legs and play. We're getting cabin fever by the time we stop. So for, for us, that works. Um, I completely understand that, you know, for some people that the idea of, you know, 45 minute or 60 minute stops every, um, you know, three hours is a little bit uh, excessive. But, you know, as we move into the next wave of electric vehicles, which, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get onto in the conversation, uh, you're talking exactly those stops that you, you were kind of referencing, 15, okay. 20 minutes, and you'll be on the road again. Steve, and your family, uh, if you don't mind, are, are you the, um, the sole driver or do multiple people in your family drive the car? And... Um, in that part of the country, are the rules um, for you are in your favor with HOV lanes and things like that? Do you have, other than the fact that you're, you know, being environmentally um, sound and, and good, and um, you probably now have figured out the, the math equation part of having an EV, how about the convenience of being on a, a crowded road? Do you get to um, experience some of that, um, some of those niceties? Um, a little bit. It's not quite um, as beneficial for us. We don't. I work remotely, so you know my my office is wherever there's a good coffee shop. Um, I understand my, that completely. Yes. Yep, that's a good one. Um, my my wife actually, you know, driving to work would be uh, less environmentally friendly for her. She uh, cycles down to Cambridge uh, from our kind of we're just north in Greater Boston, uh -huh. so she has a, um, a cycle commute. But um, there are you know there are benefits. There are. Um, there's a lot of places we can park, um, you know, in slightly better spots and uh, take advantage of uh, free supplementary charging, however you want to term it. Um, there's a number of uh, networks, most notably around us, uh, Volta Charging, who offer a lot of, um, you know, premium parking spaces and they're an ad-supported charging network. So you can pull up to our local grocery store, for example, park right at the front, as long as the space is free, get some free electrons whilst you, uh, you know, go in and do your regular grocery shop. So it's winning for the business because they're, you know, getting our business or winning our business. Um, and that's obviously beneficial for us getting that extra little bit of a top-up as we shop. 
Um, as far as HRV, I think the, the main benefit of that seems to be over in the West Coast, from what I can tell. You know, people obviously get the, the sticker and access to the, um, the HRV lens, um, but that's also the case. You know, in the UK, a lot of um, legislation is coming in now where there are ultra low emission zones, and I know London has a congestion charge. I'm, I'm British by. Uh, by birth, so I uh, get back there semi-regularly, and that seems to be the way a lot of city centres are going. So I think more and more you're going to see, you know, legislation in these larger cities where you can get better access to um, those central areas if you have a uh, zero emissions or a low emissions vehicle. Steve, would you consider the Brits ahead of us in EV rollout, or behind, or about the same? Um, I think in terms of charging infrastructure, our speed is higher. We've got a lot of uh, initiatives like Electrify America, which I know you guys have touched on in a um, podcast last year, where they've crossed the country and, uh, you know, they're getting uh, infrastructure and equipment in that can go up to 350 kilowatts, which is far faster than any of the uh, the vehicles that are on the road right now. So they're really future-proofed. Um, in terms of density, um, there are some quite large gaps, whereas the UK is a very small country, as you know, it's barely fit into uh, one of your states so it's um you know if you take a long journey the the range of my vehicle would cross the country at the moment so um yeah it's really just a case of i think that the legislation is is driving things there um now though because they did bring in i think the latest target is 2030 for kind of moving on from uh, gasoline sales of new gasoline vehicles so the um the all across Europe, a lot of those uh, countries are kind of introducing, you know, restrictions so that uh, it's incentivizing people to move over to you know, either low emissions or uh, completely electric vehicles. Steve, uh, I know Bruce doesn't have an EV, and nor do I, but we've re- we've had some to test through the years, and um, hmm. as best I can figure out, there are three kinds of people: those who have bought the car for environmental reasons, those who think that it's um, economically sound and, and maybe and some who understand both sides of that. Have you done math uh, through the years of your vehicles and has it worked out uh, not only um, a, as a cleaner car, but has it worked out financially, um, if you care to share that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't have specific numbers in front of me, but no. um, you know, my wife, my wife is very driven by um, you know the economics of the decision. The car, the car itself, you know, as most people will probably be aware, if they've even looked at EV sticker prices, um, you know, it's usually about five to ten thousand uh, dollars more expensive than an equivalent um, gas vehicle. So you know, the Chevy Bolt, in its own right, is uh, you know a small kind of compact uh, hatchback car, but um, you know, it's uh, it's. MSRP is around $37,000, which is very expensive for a, a car of that type. Now, you know, with dealership uh, discounts and a bunch of other incentives, that comes down pretty quickly. But, um, yes. you know, the biggest the biggest thing that I think is, is missing in the education piece at the moment for electric vehicles is how much you'll save over the, um, the total cost of ownership of the car, the lifetime of the vehicle. So, um, you know, you're looking at, uh, depending on the electricity prices in your area, you know, it's the, the various um, folks that have analyzed it have looked between, you know, 3000 and uh, $10,000 over the lifetime of the vehicle in savings just from fueling costs alone. Um, I would say that we're on probably something between $4 or $5 a tank, if you like, a tank being 250 miles. 
roughly. Yes. Um, so, you know, it's a very, very low price to fill up. And uh, if you do it judiciously, you know, um, if your electricity is uh, cheaper in, say, uh, a commercial circumstance where you work and you can get your employer to, you know, um, invest in charging stations, then there's a chance to save some money there. You know, if you have it at home where you're on a good tariff and, um, you know, you're below the national average of around 15 cents per kilowatt hour then, you know, again, that's a very, very cheap uh, running costs. And then you look at the other side as maintenance. You know, we don't really spend anything other than tire rotations. There's no oil changes. The wear on the brakes is very minimal because of the, um, you know, regenerative braking, which is using the system and the electric motors to slow the car and putting energy back into the battery rather than using physical brake pads. So, you know, there's a bunch of um, savings that add up over the cost uh, lifetime of the vehicle to really, you know, I, I think it brings it in line with the cost of a new uh, gas vehicle as it is. But, uh, you know, we're reaching places where battery costs are coming down so rapidly that even the sticker price within the next, you know, two or three years will be very similar to gasoline vehicles. Steve, you made some excellent points, of course. And I'm, I'm wondering if you think those points, and maybe there are some others that would, um, for lack of a better term, win the public over uh, to electric vehicles. Um, we've talked about this before where, the hybrid world was the Prius, and um, you know it took a long time for the numbers to go up to whatever it is, three or four or five percent uh, hybrid cars, and that's one step. But the EV would take the general public out of its buying uh, preferences. Is the marketing of the savings, in your opinion, the the best way to approach this? So people see this idea as not an inconvenience, but a convenience. Yeah, I think the, the the largest two points for me would be, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that waking up to 100%, you know, um, charge, so a full tank, essentially, if someone told you, you know, they'd leave a full tank of gas in your um, your vehicle, you know, every week, then you'd be pretty happy not to have to drive out and uh, fill up with uh, at the gas station, I would guess, and that, that's what you have for, you know, what is most people's routine uh, driving um, you know, so you, you save a lot of time just in that kind of, you know, weekly um, routine of not having to, you know, divert to a gas station when you realize you're low. So, you know, I think that's a big benefit that gets overlooked because, uh, you know, a lot of people just don't think that, um, you know, they focus on the public charging and don't think, well, you know, most outlets anywhere that has a dryer outlet has enough to top up a car overnight or electric car overnight. And then the other side is just the, um, yeah, the, the sticker price is, is real. You know, sticker shock is obviously something that is big. And I think it's important to, part of it's going to be on the dealerships is probably the biggest hurdle is to, you know, have them explain this because these are the experts. These are the people you want, you know, who want to sell cars. Um, and we probably need more dealers who are on board with electric vehicles and have the models to sell you know part of it is choice part of it is having your volkswagens and your fords uh, who are coming out with pretty compelling electric vehicles this year you know start to share with their dealers you know the ways that they can sell these uh, cars and you know point out the big advantages rather than kind of trying to move people back to a, a gas model bruce go ahead Oh, sorry. I interrupted. Hey, uh, Steve, I was curious if sort of the, I would say the Model 3 Tesla is kind of the the yardstick right now. It's very popular. Yeah. Um, how would, what would you place your, your Chevy Bolt compared to that? What advantage would the, or is there an advantage to a, to a number three? 
Well, it's it's really cost. Um, we we you know I love Tesla and everything they've done. I think they have opened the door for cars like the Bolt EV to even exist. So um, you know there are factions within the EV world that um, I don't subscribe to. That I think any all electric sale is a, a step in the right direction. Um, but the you know the the Model Three is once you get down to the final price around ten thousand to twelve thousand dollars more expensive than a Chevy Bolt. And I think the prices are kind of adjusting to the the reality of the vehicles and what they can do. So, you know, Chevy is a an entry level brand. It's, you know, an economical, practical choice. And that's what the uh, the Bolt TV, rec- you know, represents that part of the market, which is, you know, now in used terms, you can pick these things up for 13, 14 grand. Um, the newest uh, that we drive right now, the 2020 Chevy Bolt TV. Uh, which the 2021 will be very similar, is um, you know available for around 20 to 25 thousand dollars in um, you know certain markets after the incentives. So for that sense, it's the entry level you know bargain basement uh, EV that can do 200 250 plus miles. Um, and the Model Three is is really the tech choice. You know, there's uh, that's if you want a very the easiest transition to electric vehicles in some ways, that would probably be the one because that's going to do everything through its, uh, you know, system, tell you exactly where to charge, tell you what, how long it's going to take, all that kind of stuff. A road trip in a Tesla is, you know, significantly easier at this point than uh, in a Chevy Bolt EV or any other non-Tesla electric vehicle. So it really depends on, you know, do you want something that is more a regular car and move into something that helps you kind of make that uh, transition to electric vehicles on a practical and, you know, feels more like a traditional vehicle? Or do you want to make the jump all the way into the high-tech, you know, premium uh, EV experience, which is what Tesla has kind of nailed down? I see. Yeah, definitely they're a higher price point. And and not to make this into a uh, Tesla advertisement, (laughs) Also, we'll just use their charging station as sort of the maybe the gold standard too. Their network. What you used Volta, you said, and what other? How are the other charging station uh, compared to the Tesla one? So Volta is a is a local one that's uh, kind of they're a little bit more focused on metro areas and uh, what we call level two charging. So that's going to be, you know, the same type of charging that you have at home that tops you up overnight. Um, at the Tesla level, you're talking, um, you know, Tesla superchargers, but the equivalent in the non-Tesla EV space would be Electrify America, really, which is, you know, I think, again, you guys have talked about that uh, spanning the country on a couple of routes last year. Yes. Um, and that's pretty much, that, that's why it's, you know, they are the highest powered network, as I was saying, you know, they got uh, 350 kilowatts, which is far more than most cars can take. And even the Tesla superchargers on uh, their latest V3 iteration uh, will max out around 250 kilowatts. Um, so they're future-proofed in that sense. They're the only network or non-Tesla network that is um, kind of across the country. So it will pretty much take you wherever you want to go with a few kind of glaring exceptions, which uh, you know are in less populous states, but uh, certainly places we still want to visit. So there are some gaps there, which Tesla is a little bit ahead of them. Um, but in terms of, you know, the, the biggest thing, I guess, is convenience of starting a charge, which, um, again, Electrify America has a technology called uh, plug and charge in uh, integrated into all of their uh, hardware, which will be the equivalent of a Tesla just plugging in and the car and the station doing all the work in the background to bill you. So that's why Teslas are so easy at the moment, aside from the fact that they will tell you exactly where and when to charge. You could just turn up, plug in, and everything is going to happen in the background. So you can walk away, grab a coffee, get a meal, whatever it is you want to do. 
quite the case at the moment on Electrify America, but primarily because the cars, again, are behind the uh, the network itself. You know, they have the technology and the stations, but the uh, they're, I think the first car is uh, on the road will be the Ford Mustang Mach-E, which is, you know, going to have that plug-and-charge capability. So it's still a case of the manufacturers catching up to the network rather than the network lagging the cars. That brings up uh, another point I was going to mention. If, of course, you've mentioned your vehicles. Do you keep pretty good tabs on one of the other segments that's just starting is the pickup truck world? And with Rivian and a few others, some have already gone away before they were introduced. But the Nic- Nic- Nicola, I think, is that if, I'm, mm-hmm. if I'm saying it correctly, yeah, is, is gone away. Right? Yeah. And do you um, have a good feeling on those? Or would you care to share an opinion on on Rivian and, and some of the other ones that are on the horizon. The Ford F one fifty. Ford yeah, that F one fifty. Beg your pardon. How could I not forget how could I not remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well I think I mean there's you know, I'm I'm about as far from a pickup guy as uh, as you could get coming from the UK where we couldn't fit to pickups on the road and then <laughs> in Boston where that thank you for that advised. <laughs> yeah. but um i completely appreciate you know how important and uh you know core they are to the u.s uh, and north american automotive market and um it to be honest the rivian is the one that has really got me thinking could i be a truck guy you know, yeah you and me both is yeah. there a place yeah it just looks i mean i kind of it i guess someone called it the, the most emotional purchase potentially of 2021 um, whereby you see them, you know, with camping on top, and I can just see my family kind of, you know, out in the uh, the White Mountains up in New Hampshire, kind of taking our vacations, you know, and using the car. So, you know, but, but that's a tough sell for my wife. You know. Sure, <laughs> we're in a we're in a practical economical EV for a reason. Sure. But I mean, Rivian Rivian has a lot of potential. You know, they have the alignment with uh, Amazon to deliver their delivery vehicles. Um, so that's a big, you know, piece of their funding. Um, then you have, I think, there was uh, twenty five. Um, billion mooted. It's just a crazy number that was in the last few days, you know, yes. being kicked around for how much they might have uh, in the back pocket. So um, their their strategy has been very considered. Uh, I saw the vehicle, the R1T and the R1S actually, but you know, the R1T is the truck that is the uh, the most you know eye catching um, yes. down yeah. at uh, fully charged live in Austin, Texas last year, and it it's, it lives up to the hype in terms of you know looking at the car and. It's um, it looks like something you would want to take out on the um, the mountains or the the desert and just you know off road it until it uh, you know gives out I guess but um, you know really the delivery will be the key thing you know what kind of efficiency do you get from it is the 400 miles that has been uh, you know mooted as the range a realistic in real world towing yes. uh, going off road and you know the other piece is what they do with the network that they're planning to build the Rivian Adventure Network you know there's it will by all accounts, kind of mimic some of Electrify America's coverage, but the real rubber will meet the the, the dirt road, I guess, with um, you know where they put those. Will they go out to national parks? Will they put them in places that nobody else really wants to go purely because that's the brand? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I have a lot of, um, you know, um, a, a soft spot for them, if you like. Um, the other side is... Uh, yeah, that's not really a work truck. That seems to be something that's gonna again, it's a premium kind of product. It's a high price, you know, starting seventy, eighty thousand dollars. That range, player talking, that's kinda of going up against um, you know, the the GMC Hummer and the kind of, you know, premium category sure. in that sense. Um, but the you know, there's there are other manufacturers out there, Lordstown, um, is kinda of close to my heart as well because my family or my extended family comes from Ohio. So I would love to see that area get a bump. 
Um, and it's much more of a humble, you know, work truck. But I think that's the whole point is, you know, for, for people like fleet managers, it's not about how, you know, sexy the interior is or how far it can go. It's kind of get the job done through the day. So if they can, you know, transition to a even 50% electric fleet, um, then you start seeing a lot of savings. And that's the bottom line for a lot of fleet managers. So I, I kind of have good feelings about Lordstown if they can uh, deliver their numbers as well. I'm not familiar with Lordstown. I, I am a little familiar with Lucid Technology and their vehicles. It's another high-end uh, Tesla beater type vehicle. Have you seen yeah. those? Yeah, I mean, the you know, the biggest thing about cars like um, the, the Lucid, um, the Rivian, uh, to a certain extent, and even, you know, the Ford Mustang Mach-E kind of going up against the Tesla Model Y, is that you're seeing other competitors start to deliver Tesla-like numbers, both in terms of range, performance, and all of the key things that we, you know, typically associate Tesla with, and, uh, you know, which stuff like the Chevy Bolt could never really meet, you know, it's a competent enough car in its own right, but it's not a performance vehicle, you know, it's not... Um, you know, this doesn't have the high-end feel that's uh, on the key EV uh, stats. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very bullish on uh, companies like Lucid, Rivian as pure EV startups, but also, you know, Ford, as you said, with the F-150 going electric and uh, the Mustang Mach-E looks very promising. If those companies can start to fill the gaps that, uh, you know, people, some people just don't want to buy a Tesla. It's just too, too much of a jump for them. And it's, you know, maybe the build quality isn't right for them. They don't want to buy it, not from a dealership. You know, they want to have some support network locally. Um, I think the other companies need to start filling those gaps and giving them more options. And so it's nice to see companies like Ford and Volkswagen stepping into to kind of push their versions of electric vehicles forward. Steve, in another area, to divert just for a, a bit, um, what are your responsibilities with the, the website? What are, um, having not um, looked at it in great detail, what are, what are you up to uh, on a daily basis? And, and how do you find, um, as a website owner, I'm curious, how, how do you find the public has um, reached out to whether it's something that's very traditional like Edmunds or Kelly Blue Book or Car and Driver or uh, independent sites that are talking about EVs or other components of the automotive industry. Do you think that um, with the media shrinking in the print world that those of us who are in the online world will see a greater um, benefits to having our sites? What, what's been your experience working for the site? Yeah, so I'm primarily engaged with writing, you know, EV-related content and kind of explaining the uh, the, the gap, you know, in uh, understanding where people want to transition or are thinking about transitioning from, um, you know, a combustion vehicle to an electric car. Yes. Um, so, you know, I've been writing pieces about that and trying to fill some of the education gaps, if you like. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's obviously been a very crazy year and, um, you know, online has been more important than ever. You know, in the wider world, you've seen, you know, retailers, physical retailers really struggle and uh, e-commerce direct to consumer companies really, you know, boom just because, you know, people have turned to the online world for their, um, you know, their products and their shopping and whatever else they can do. That means they don't have to, you know, engage physically quite so um, much as they used to. Um, I think some of that will return to normal, but you know, there's a there's a sea change in how people um, view things like e-commerce and uh, the buying um, experience now, which I think will be hard to put back in the bottle. You know, it's it's tough to 
once you realize that there is so much there online for you, information available, you know, people doing reviews of vehicles, um, filling the information gaps that you maybe have when you consider, will you replace your old, uh, you know, gasoline vehicle with, uh, as you say, a hybrid um, plug-in vehicle or a full electric. All of the information is there now. And I think, you know, sites like findthebestcarprice.com, uh, it's really in line with, uh, you know, the owner's mission to, to kind of make the car buying um you know, journey simpler to help people get the best deal that they can, um, whether that's a gasoline vehicle, you know, a hybrid or a, an electric vehicle. Um, so that's kind of where we're working is, you know, finding the people who do have some level of interest in electric vehicles and um, providing the information to them in the same way that we would for, you know, people who are cost conscious, people who want a certain type of vehicle, um, just putting those buying guides together, giving them the best advice that we can to make sure they make the right decision for their family. I see. One other question we haven't uh, talked about, and I understand if you lease a vehicle, you don't have to worry about the battery life. But if you buy a vehicle and you're thinking cost consciousness, as you've mentioned a couple of times, how do you wrap your head around the fact that those batteries are going to go bad in, you tell me, seven yeah, years, I mean, eight it... years, ten years? What do you do when you've got several thousand dollar bill there? Who... Yeah, I mean, we're, it's kind of a, it's an interesting question because we are literally ten years to the uh, to the year where the Nissan Leaf, the you know first generation, was um, was launched, and uh, obviously Tesla came along um, in 2012. So we're st we're only really just getting to that point where these vehicles have been even on been on the road for ten years. Um, but the you know the likelihood is that the battery is going to be the piece that lasts the longest. To be honest, um, especially with the the improvements that we've seen in battery technology in the last four or five years, um, the they're warranted in the U.S. Uh, federally mandated warranty for eight years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes sooner. So you know you've already got a pretty large chunk of the uh, the car's life there um, to to make sure that battery is not going to go bad, um, and it's kind of. To me, it seems like the less, the least likely parts of the car to go wrong. There are, you know, there are very few horror stories that you hear, other than some um, some of the early model Nissan Leafs, you know, having significant degradation of their range. Um, the battery has been a pretty, you know, stand up, reliable part of the car. Um, if it does go bad, uh, that you know, as I say, the warranty typically covers that for that uh, first significant portion of the car's life. Um, beyond that, we're looking at, you know, what do you do with these packs once they're not, no longer useful for a vehicle, but, right. um, you know, uh, and there's there's plenty of um, potential for, you know, second life, stationary storage at uh, EV charging networks, at uh, workplaces, commercial uses, and then maybe even a third life use before they're retired and the recycling process kicks in. So, you know, there's that side of it, but there's also the fact that we're talking about such a long period of time that you have to kind of, it comes into the point of how long is a car going to last, you know, regardless of its, its drivetrain and how easy is it to replace that drivetrain once you have... Um, you know, the need to do so. Um, so I think 10, eight to 10 years is pretty reasonable for, for any vehicle. And then, you know, batteries in their design are becoming, you know, almost modular. So you're probably going to be able to switch out, you know, the parts that aren't good um, in the next, uh, by the time it gets to the end of life, you know, you're going to have that ability from the manufacturer to replace the battery. Um, and it's kind of becomes a consideration of, you know, again, total cost of ownership, how much am I saving on other costs versus this one big piece of the puzzle, um, and with battery costs coming down, you know, by the time you have to make that decision, the likelihood is that's going to be a very cheap component to replace. Great. 
Well, that'd be nice. I, know, <laughs> I have 156,000 on my 12-year-old Subaru, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't know that they would stock a battery for that thing if it had one, but we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's changed. You know, we're talking about such a long distance in the future that um, I, I think it's important for people to read up and kind of understand who's producing the uh, you know what the manufacturer is offering you in terms of how committed are they to battery electric vehicles because if it's a a company that's only half in it then uh, you may run into problems down the line but if it's you know someone who's clearly uh, you know all in on electric vehicles you're not going to have a problem I don't think well that's true if you're th- you're talking Tesla that's true that's true hey yeah. Steve I, on a personal note I, I'd be remiss in not saying that listening to your wonderful speaking bo- voice that none of the Bostonian um, speaking voices have snuck into your the Queen's English. <laughs> How did that yeah, happen? Well, it, uh, it couldn't be corrupted. I lived before we were in Boston. I lived in New York City, so the two, uh, <laughs> harshest accents potentially on the uh, East Coast have not corrupted me yet. So That's good. The accent appears to be uh, holding out so far. Yeah, my family's from New York, and so every every once in a while, I I left as a boy, and every once in a while, a word will sneak in there. But I think I speak california now i don't know what that means exactly but yep, it's did. it's great to listen to your voice it's so d- distinguished oh, I appreciate it. from sure. across the my pond daughter, my my daughter had st- has started to say car car uh, <laughs> we're go. wondering my when i was in the uk i grew up in liverpool and uh, my parents heard the scouse accent coming in and promptly moved me south so uh, i don't know if that will happen with us but uh, born in so liverpool that's, uh, and raised in liverpool that's that, well that's another podcast for us sometime that it would be great to talk about liverpool um, yeah, absolutely. So, well, doesn't come across in the accent, obviously. So. No. Um, well, Steve, thanks for the uh, half hour. Or so you just um, filled us full of knowledge, and um, we recommend that people visit the site again. It's um, findthebestcarprice.com, and you're the uh, Ford slash EV guy. You're the you're the EV person. So check it out. There's a lot of stuff on the site, and. We want to thank you for for being our guest on the Weekly Driver Podcast. Thanks so much. Yep. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Cheers.